sleep past. You're all good. If I sleep to eight o'clock, I have a one-year-old, so that's rest for me now. Like, it's been great. And welcome to the final Heritage Radio Network live podcast panel here at South Bites at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. Um, we are really, really excited for this one. Couldn't be a, a stronger panel to close with. My name is Jack Inslee, the executive producer of the network, joined by one half of the Snacky Tunes massive Darren Bresnitz. I don't know if I call it massive. Oh, sorry, I was, I was eating um, a cold breakfast taco. Sounds like Snacky Tunes. That's, That's the sounds, way to go. sounds like a regular episode of Snacky Tunes. I mean, I. Um, instead of pizza. Instead of pizza. I mean, you just. No one does breakfast tacos like Austin. There's just no way around it. Or at least the, the ones in my mind that scratch the itch. But I wanted to introduce um, two amazing chefs, Alex Dupac, Eric Berner Yang. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. What's Thanks up? For us. Thanks for having us. Um, quick intro who you guys are. Um, why don't you say it yourself? I always, like, I always like to hear how people describe themselves. Alex, um, how do you see yourself? <laughs> How's it going? My name's Alex Dupac. I'm the uh, chef and owner of Empeon Restaurants in New York City. Um, and I'm a more or less a taco salesman at this point. Just peddling, peddling your taco wares. That's, that's what it comes down to. And cookbook author? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I wrote a book that incidentally was also about tacos. And uh, Shout out we, to Jordana Rothman. Yes, mm-hmm. Jordana Rothman did an incredible job helping me write it. And I'm really proud of it. We have a couple of uh, award nods as well, or nominations. Uh, yeah, so far so good. We got three nominations, um, the IACP awards, so Ooh. fingers crossed, maybe we'll get one. Yeah. I believe that you will. <laughs> I, believe, I, believe, I believe in the power. It's a, good, it's a great book. Thank you. Um, Eric? Uh, my name is Eric Bruner-Yang. I'm the chef owner of Toki Underground and Maketo in Washington, D.C. Um, how is the D.C. food scene? different you know it's a small city uh rapidly growing i feel like i'm saying in haiku small city (laughs) rapidly growing um due to obama there you go there There, almost haiku almost haiku there yeah well done thanks some like finger snaps going (laughs) so what we want to talk to today is really just about like the shifting perception of what food costs and not Mm -hmm. just from like real fa- cost, like yeah, the real cost, like not just from a fast food perspective, but like in doing foods that are once considered cheap now being elevated, um, and why they cost so much, and what people sort of have an issue with, you know, or be, or like or trying to re-educate them. Um, now, Alex, I know that you have become like this, like a taco ambassador of New York, but your tacos, for those who don't know, it, explain like what type your approach to tacos, and um, how they are elevated above the like. Maybe your like one dollar carne asada street taco. Um, yeah, sure. So we um, we focus on uh, Mexican cuisine and uh, we try to be inspired by it. And we use the taco honestly as a tool or a portal um, or a way to uh, to start a discussion about uh, Mexican cooking in general and what it's worth. Uh, we still feel very much that um, there's a lot of bias towards it and uh, many other cuisines that we sadly think of as uh, immigrant class in in America. Um, so what we're trying to do is use a taco to actually create true price diversity within a genre of cooking. So uh, we have one place, Empeon Al Pastor, which is our cheapest, um, and most of the tacos on the menu there are $4, and that's still um, annoyingly expensive to people. Um, some people understand 
why it's a bit more because we you know import our own corn from Oaxaca and we sure. grind it and nixtamalize it ourselves and those things take work arguably it takes more work than making fresh pasta in house which people are happy to pay $24 for sure um, but then we we also have empe on taqueria and empe on cocina so yeah for us it's just really about um, sort of creating this this price diversity which we feel like the cuisine deserves when you look at Italian or French they, they certainly have achieved that so we think Mexican could do the same yeah I mean there's a lot of when I think about mole, it's like 40 ingredients, 50 ingredients, 60 ingredients, and then people, it's like, that's just a ton of stuff, you know. Tomato sauce could be easily tomatoes, salt. Sure, and, and, and that's not to make an argument that it's um, more complex than other cuisines, it's just that it's... Um, no, but I'm saying there's more that goes into, like, it's, I mean, it's, it's, you never think of Mexican food and go, well, that's a bland, non-complex No, no 100%. And I, I mean, I've said this uh, statement over and over, and it's pretty unpopular, but I'll always argue that some of the greatest lovers of Mexican cooking are the ones that are keeping it in the economic ghetto. Um, so the ones oh. who are saying, well, this is, you know, this is bullshit, and I know where to get the best $1 taco, they're not really thinking about the quality of life of that person making the $1 taco. Is that taquero sending their kids to college? Are they buying good ingredients? Right. Or, so sometimes I think the... Um, the quote-unquote uh, fans or lovers of it are obviously the problem. I mean, but how do you... Well, we'll get into how that shifts in, in, in a <laughs> sure. second. Sure. Uh, like um, but, Eric, I mean, talk about the food that you make and, and the, the different approach to, to your cuisine. Uh, so, Toki Underground is kind of a, a modern take on Taiwanese-American food. It's specializing in ramen. Um, I am not Japanese, so we don't say it's Japanese ramen specifically because of that, even though there's the backbones in that cooking. And then at Maketo, we do Taiwanese Cambodian food uh, in the way that I know it, which is um, just through, you know, my life experiences through those cultures. Uh, one, my wife being Cambodian, and then obviously sure. me being Taiwanese. Um, you know, kind of in regards to what, you know, Chef was saying, um, you know, we cook immigrant food, um, but we cook it here in America. And those will always, because we do those things, um, you know, our barriers are always price, price first. What, right. How do we price it on the menu? And, and, at, and at what degree and what level do we want to do it at? And then, and then once we figure out what that final price is, you know, you know there's always a constant conversation about justification. Um, and how do we justify, how do I justify serving a $15 bowl of ramen and then you get, you know, XYZ person that they're always saying, you know, well, you know, it's $5 in Japan or, you know, this is $2 in Taiwan or this is a dollar in Cambodia. They understand um, currency conversion rates though, right? You, you, probably not. Probably not. <laughs> you know? Probably not. You know, like I, you know, I, I was teaching English in Japan and, you know, I, I never spent more than 20 bucks a month on food and it's like, well... You know, this is not reality. You know. Right. So here's my question. So we all, we all know the we all know the conversation is that you guys make you take ethnic food, you put it at quality ingredients, you put do that, it costs more. But what's the argument? I mean, what's the where does the conversation go instead of this sort of like infinity loop of like we use better ingredients, we do more things from scratch, things like that? Like, what can you say now? Like, what is the the deepest, darkest new argument that you have to to make people? really open their eyes and see like why there is a cost for this type of food. I'll answer that first because I've actually been thinking about this um, mostly also because I'm just uh, a huge, huge fan of Chef here where 
Um, you know, arguably one of the greatest pastry chefs of all time, especially like second newer generation, who takes this venture into kind of breaking this barrier of um, tackling, you know, Mexican food and doing it at a really high level. But the way I want to answer that, it actually takes um, someone like him um, to break those boundaries for the next ethnic chef to come to pave the way. So basically what I'm saying is it's gonna take someone not of that ethnicity's either cultural background or color background or anything like that. To, they are typically the ones that kind of pave the way that allow someone like me to kind of follow in those footsteps and say, well, you know, he's doing it um, and you guys all love that and it makes sense to you that he's doing it. So, you know, now we're our generation of our group of people are gonna do that. And I think you'll start seeing a lot more of that you know, new wave Mexican food or new wave Asian food where people like Alex are the ones that were able to break that kind of ground for us. Rick Bayless is another perfect sure. example. Um, well, my, my approach to the whole thing is um, I've actually kind of, other than like having the opportunity to write a book or um, have an interesting conversation with, uh, with people like yourselves, I actually don't think um, there's anything to say or do. I think, it, or excuse me, not say but do. Like I, I think that it's uh, it's all about actions. So we can get really down on ourselves. I mean, hell, I, I read a Yelp review about one of my places today. I still read them all and torture myself, um, where they they were pissed off that they spent ten bucks at Empe on Al Pastor and it broke their heart that it was so expensive for Mexican cuisine. Broke their and heart. At the end of the day, you have to look as a restaurateur. I'm going to look at my places objectively and go, "Are we doing a good job?" Sure. Um, sooner or later, you also have to acquiesce to the idea that um, this is not a moral issue and that business is risk, and you have to be willing to put something out there, and you actually have to be willing to fail. Um, if all three MPOs close tomorrow, that the world would go on. Um, I, I would uh, have a hard time living with that, but the world will be just fine. Um, my approach going forward is to keep opening more restaurants. I'm going to grow. So if right now 70% of the New York City population is accepting and the other 30% isn't, I'm going to keep drowning them out. Oh, I mean, um, that, I mean that's, that's a pretty good percentage of New York public liking you. 70%. Sure, sure. And I mean, I, I don't even have any way to, to quantify that. No, um, you've gone on the record now, and this is now forever. Okay. It's 70. 70%. Right, 70. 70% of all of New York uh, thinks I'm the shit. Um, <laughs> sure. Uh, no, I, I, our approach, and again, to tie this more into, the, forget about um, the cost of ethnic cooking or the perception of it, just the cost of restaurants. Um, some people, like, look, you can look at it negatively and sit, like, honestly go, like, I, I see a dark patch coming in the New York City restaurant, or the, just the restaurant world. Um, or you can just think about it as um, revolution and radicalization. I mean, think about this idea. I mean, once upon a time, everyone here bought all their music in a record store. Right. And we liked that experience very sure. much. And then something else became available. Right. And we as a culture made a choice. Now, record stores still exist, but there's way, way less of them. And all the big chains are pretty much One shut or, or, sh or shutting. We decided, um, without saying a word, that we were okay with not having the experience of you know, thumbing through the CDs, buying it, um, you know, pulling that plastic off the jewel case, like we said, we're okay with that. We said, we don't need the packaging, we just need the stuff. And I actually see that starting to happen now um, with restaurants, yeah. and it, it might piss off a restaurateur, but you also have to look at it objectively. Let's talk about some facts. I mean, in New York City, I mean, I can't speak to other cities, New York City costs are going up. The minimum wage, or tip earners, just went up this year. 
And for Empeon alone, that meant $350,000 just lit on fire, gone, that, you're not, that you are now no longer making. Yeah, so, but, but your employees then make more money. Sure. Sure, right. but but that cost is that cost is just completely transferred to the restaurant, and the restaurant somehow has to has to figure out how they're going to stay open. Right, you can't raise you can't raise your prices to really match. Well, well, you can you can do whatever you want, but now here's the other part of that: people in general are not making more money. So with those tip earners making, it's not like well, everyone in every other business is just making uh, you know two to ten percent more money. It, it just didn't happen, and it's not going to happen. So there's other part. Rent continues to climb. Cost of food continues to climb. So objectively, as a diner, um, if I know that a, like a cheap meal in New York City is now going to be $120 for two people, and it's a 50-50 crapshoot, whether I'm going to get a, a shit table or a good table or a shit server or a good server, why wouldn't I buy a bottle of wine and order it on Maple or go to the grocery yeah. store, cook it myself, and watch Netflix? Why wouldn't I do that on my Saturday instead of... so? I think you're going to see, like, back to, like, there's, food's not going to go away. I think creative chefs are going to, like, come up with new ways to deploy it. I mean, do you, you're, I mean, you have a beautiful restaurant. You have a fun experience. You know, you go out. But do you care if someone eats your food in the restaurant or in their, ca- or in their apartment? Um, I mean, I care that I still have my restaurants. Um, of, and, and Of course. We, I mean, we... Empeon, I think, will ultimately be okay because we have infrastructure. I've leaned into growing and turning us into a real restaurant group. And I'm doing that so you have, um, look, if you have four restaurants with 300 employees, you have better insurance rates than if you have one restaurant with 15 employees. Uh, but, I mean, that's, and I think we we talked about it before, but, I mean, having more restaurants, being a restaurant group, seems like the only way that you can really keep your costs down and really survive. Maybe, and it, it, it's, it's sad. Like, look, it's like I applaud Danny Meyer for getting rid of tipping, but Danny Meyer also has a huge company, yeah. and he has culture coaches yeah. and CEOs and CFOs and COOs and every and other, every, every other <laughs> thing that you can think of. So he has, he has infrastructure to do that. Sure. My worry, particularly with New York, like my New York and what I love about New York, I'm afraid of um, a certain uh, artistic element, a certain... Um, I mean, like, look, since I've been in Austin, it's been incredibly inspiring. Some of the businesses and the way they're put together and the oh, uniqueness yeah. of them, you would, you would spend $4 million with a designer to make things look as fucked up and as unique as, I, as I'm seeing them here. Um, and I sadly am starting to see that get whitewashed and gentrified out of New York City. Unless you go to, like, uh, you know, like Brooks's place, like Superi- Superiority Burger, where yeah, you're getting yeah. a tiny shoebox that feels fresh and unique, but it's like a hole in the wall. Right, and, and you know, Brooks is a very courageous person, yeah. but, like, we need, I need 20 more like him in that yeah, city, it, and it's, it's going away. Like, the East Village, if that was the last seedy neighborhood or if the Lower East Side or Chinatown, um, I mean, what happens when they start open, tearing down buildings and opening up an Abercrombie and Fitch there? So yeah, what about you, D.C.? Because, I mean, I know that we focus a lot on, on New York on, and things like that, but, like, in another, I mean, D.C. is a, a big city, East Coast. Is it comparable or is it different? Um, I mean, kind of to piggyback on that, you know, New York City used to be kind of like the cultural reference point of anything interesting that was going on anywhere in, you know, in America in general, general, if you wanted to see the best band, go to the best restaurant, go to the best retail stores, um, and, you know, slowly those things are kind of going away, and people are, are opening their flagships in different cities that are just more viable, um, DC is not a, it's actually a really small city, maybe like eight miles left to right. Um, and it's still really new, you know. We, we would go to the same restaurant for prom and homecoming 
in the city because it'd be the only like two. Shout it, shout it out. Yeah, the Red Sage, you yeah. know. There you go. And it was like, which is now Jose Andres's Oyamel. Um, and, you know, there were only maybe like half a dozen decent restaurants in Washington, D.C., but now you have this huge explosion. But I think, are we carving an identity? Not, not probably not. Um, and we're probably 10 years away or so from that where we can have anchor chefs who have large anchor businesses, four or five restaurants, uh, self, self-made guys doing restaurant groups, you know, however they want to think of a new way to call a restaurant group. Um, but all of those things are, are necessary. Whether you have uh, 10 restaurants doing 2.5, you know, 2.5 million, you got a 20 million portfolio, or you got three restaurants doing 10, 10.5 million, which is per typical, say, like the New York restaurant groups, you know, those are their average numbers. Um, you kind of need those things because you need leverage, you know? You need to spread the costs throughout all of your businesses. Uh, you're required by law. Um, to follow all of these HR rules that didn't exist for restaurants before that you now have to do. Um, in D.C. alone, we have to do health insurance, you know, increased minimum wages, uh, public transportation stipends, really? um, maternity leave. I mean, these are all things that people should have anyways, um, but we just never had to address them in the restaurant industry. And the only real guys that are willing to open restaurants are guys that are 25 to 35 who want to do new cool things. And these are massive barriers. It's like, you know, originally you just want to open a restaurant or a bar, have your friends come hang out and like, you know, do whatever it is you can to survive. But now there's so many rules and regulations that it's like, fuck, maybe I'll just go work for Alex instead. It just seems way easier. And that's where, not to discount the work that we do, but um, you're just going to get less and less guys w- really willing to kind of like take these huge risks to do interesting things. Are they having the tipping conversation? Are you hearing that in D.C. at all? There's a few restaurants that do it. I'll shout it out because my daughter plays with their sons, um, Sally's middle name. Um, they do the no tipping there. And, and they, you know, I feel bad for them because it's really just like a husband and a wife running a restaurant kind of thrown into this huge thing there. And I don't think they were really ready to answer really hard questions about wages, um, right, but they do it. And yeah. it's definitely been challenging for them on a consistency level, it's been hard for them. Um, but I think, you know, all of that is hard, whether or not you're talking about like, do you know how to fix a, a toilet when you open a restaurant on a Friday night and get it done without freaking out? These are just things that you learn to adapt to yeah. and you figure out how to like move, move through them. So do you see with this increase costs in these major cities, D.C., New York, do you see a talent train going to other cities? And do you see, I mean, you said about Austin, but even Austin onto itself has got, you know, increased prices and things like that. Like, are people going to, I don't know, Minneapolis, Nashville, or even, even cities that are not buzzword names yet because they're like, I want to open up a restaurant. I don't care where I am because social media means I'm everywhere. Yeah. And uh, I'm willing just to, to, to get out of New York. Sure. Um, yeah, you're seeing a few things happening. Um, so one is what you just said. So once upon a time, um, before social media, you actually had to get on a friggin' plane and go somewhere to eat that dish. I had to go travel to, to eat a biscuit coulant or, or a gargue from Michelle Bra. I had to go to El Bulli. Um, whereas now you're seeing less of that because of social media, which I think is a little sad. Um, and I feel like you're seeing, um, not to sound bitter or old or anything, but you're, I, you are seeing a younger... Um, generation, which is um, much more entrepreneurial at a young age, which I think is great. But I also think that um, qualitatively, what we're doing to the industry, um, 
is quite negative. So, look, I, I think that the, the industry correcting itself, well, there should be maternity leave and there should be a, a, a living wage and there, there, there should be all these things. Um, 100%, but also another thing I'm seeing is that I'm not seeing a character um, in line cooks anymore. When I, my first job out of culinary school, I got paid $80 a day, which is factually illegal, but I did it. So whether I worked eight hours, 12 hours, 16 hours, it was always about between 12 and 16, yeah, I, was say. I got $80 a day. And that $80 a day meant five days a week, 400 a week. So if I worked a sixth day or a seventh day, I still got $400 a week before taxes. But I remember not even thinking about money back then, whereas now what you're seeing in New York City is you're seeing... Um, young people come to you who, one, can't hold a knife, and two, are also in a position to negotiate. Um, so that, that's an interesting thing that's happening. Um, the what, other thing that's they, happening... What are they negotiating? Like huh? someone else is willing to pay me more? Like what's yeah, the they're thing? like, oh, well, I, no, I, I can get $16 an hour elsewhere. And I'm like, $16? Like, I, I just... Um, it's, yeah, you're insane. It's, but, but, they, <laughs> but they're saying that because they're, they, they, they can get it and they're right. So you're seeing that. And yes, you're, you're seeing another thing too, which is that once upon a time, if you were a serious cook, you had two, in America, you had two choices. You could go to New York City or you could go to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Whereas now there are factually awesome, serious, I mean, look, there's, there are not as many awesome restaurants in Nashville as there are in New York City. I'm sorry, we did, like, that's not a knock. We just have more restaurants. We yeah, just have when more. You, hold on, but when, but you, when you say awesome, like what is like when what, I say when I mean a serious cook or a serious okay. chef at the helm with a point of view, but they are there. So yeah, if you're gonna get paid say fifteen dollars an hour and work a forty-hour week and get six hundred dollars uh, a week right out of culinary school, you actually probably can get an apartment for that yeah. in Nashville. Yeah. In those whereas, secondary and tertiary markets. Yeah. Whereas in New York City, you're six hundred. You're, you're you're that's poverty. Um, so there is something broken there, and th- that is why you're seeing um, really cool restaurants open up in Minneapolis and, and Nashville. And hell, I think Detroit is something that's about yeah. to happen there. Detroit's got a lot of good stuff going there too, and they're just offering. I mean, because you know, and I feel like it's uh, maybe you know, I wonder if DC has this or in DC area as well. But like, you're seeing a city that needs these restaurateurs and offering incentives. Where New York is like, there's no incentive for opening a restaurant. No, no, it, it's difficult. Um, yeah, I, I think that we, I mean, not to sound negative or I'm, I'm not, I have nothing against all my contemporaries, but I think there may be too many restaurants in New York City. So, I mean, look, look if, if, if 20% of them closed, um, it wouldn't be a, 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 you know, a happy story. But if the silver lining is that um, the, the talent pool isn't so diluted, and hell, choice for diners isn't so diluted. Um, it might not be a bad thing. I, and I'm not saying it's. Go- I'm not trying to paint a picture of the zombie apocalypse of restaurants that's about to happen. Um, <laughs> no one knows what's going to happen. I mean, not to be. Listen, I mean, not to be gauche about it, but like at some point though, this is a business, right? Yeah. So, so at every point, it's a business. Fine. At every point, every point, it's a business. But I ask that in the sense of like when you're saying, are we going to charge sixteen or seventeen dollars for tacos? Are we going to charge fourteen or fifteen dollars for ramen? Like, at what point go do you say? the decision I've made to raise my prices a little bit is for profit and not just to keep the doors open. There could be that too. There could be people, I mean, you don't, we, don't ha- we don't have access to people's P&Ls or their numbers. That's sure. all private and that's their choice. And if people want to w- raise their prices to make more money and simply put it in their pocket, it is a business and there is nothing morally wrong with that. It's just a matter of if they can get it. Um, for me to handle the, um, the minimum wage hike this year, I had to make margaritas $14 instead of $12. And if that um, cited a revolt, well, that was a risk I decided I had to take. I just couldn't take that extra like revenue loss on the chin, and that that was to net out the same, still be profitable, but not not profit more. That was to net out the same. That's just so you can cover your costs or the yeah. thing. I mean, what I mean, what about 
I mean, if you don't show a profit, you won't get an investor. If you can't get an investor, you can't get another restaurant, or you can't move forward at all. You can't get a, you can't get money from the bank. You can't sell your business, um, you know. And so, ultimately, you do these things because you have a passion for it. And then in the end, you're responsible for all the people that work for you and their livelihood, and not just your livelihood, but also the investors that gave you their money. And um, you want to do it with some sense of integrity because if it does close, you know, say it closes, that you can you'll be able to, to figure out what your next step is. Um, and that's just, in the end, with all of these things that we are discussing, you know, it's something that we had talked when we pre-prepped is like, who are gonna be these restaurant investors? And you know, restaurants are already classically considered these really insanely risky investments. Like, what, like 90% failure? Yeah, or what, you know, and, um, and that's mostly because 90% of them were terrible ideas. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it's like you can do these, you can do these online Reddit funds and make a ton of money and never invest in a restaurant and all these other things that just have better rate of returns. And so, um, you know, there's just a, there's, right now there's a small group, at least in D.C. and probably in New York, where it's a small group of guys that have been successful in investing in a few restaurants, and they're the ones that are going to continue to invest in restaurants because they've been successful on the first few that they've done. And that really kind of limits your pool of where you're going to get this money from. And then when you do get the money and you're getting like 16000 from your aunt and 16000 from sure. your law school friend, and these guys have a lot of hand-holding, and you know, at some point in time, they may never get their money back. Um, yeah. And so that I mean that's kind of you know. So let's say that I'm I'm a, I'm a young chef. I'm getting started, and I want to go down the same route that you do, which is taking this you know well-known ethnic cuisine that might be considered cheap, but elevating it. I mean, what's the advice that you offer? Is it go all in on brick and mortar, start off as a food court, you know, get a stand at Smorgasburg? You know, how do you get started when you're knowing that you're going to commit to something that people might perceive, you know, say it's just too expensive? Um, the only advice I can give is that if you, if you feel like with your, let, let's say in theory that you're making, um, I, I don't know what you're making, but let's just say yours is let's 20. Let's do an elevated chicken wing. Like, I'm going to charge you $10 for two chicken I, wings. I think that I would suggest to any chef to not only, I think chefs generally when they're opening a new restaurant, I, I certainly did this, all they think about is the food in the kitchen and whether their, their setup is nice. Um, that's what they're yeah. worried about. Mm -hmm. um, uh, my advice five years later is that don't just um, regard or consider the picture. Also heavily consider the frame, meaning the environment that that food is in. Because if your environment sucks and you feel like um, with your more expensive chicken wing has to come a soliloquy on why it's more expensive, um, mm -hmm. I think you're kind of screwed. I, I think you're, you're, you know what I mean? Where it's like, um, if you, like how do I say it? If, if you saw an awesome concert, mm -hmm. That's it. You win, and it's awesome. And yeah. you, you might be a musical genius that knows all the time, crazy time signatures that that band was trying to hit, and they hit them. Or you're a moron who doesn't know anything about music. Not a moron, but you just don't know anything about music, <laughs> and, um, but you just enjoyed the hell out of it. But one way or another, you had a great experience. Um, if, if the attitude is like, well, here's my product, and it's more expensive, and you thought it sucked, and well, then you just don't get it. You just don't get it, that the chef taking that attitude. Um, you're, I think, not even in the long term, in the short term, you're going to be in trouble. So, do you wish you could explain that 12 to 14 hike on the margarita? You know, do you wish there was a mechanism for you to explain that? Um, 
No, because in it, it to me, that's wishy-washy, and it's sounding like it's apologetic. And like back to all of this, they are businesses. This is not prof- Like this is not charity. Right. We it, we are all we are all doing whatever we are doing to hopefully make money. Is it incredibly hard in restaurants? Yes. Do most of them fail? A hundred percent. But whose whose shoulder am I going to cry on? And who cares? No one asked me to do this. Yeah. No one told me to do this. I could have went to business school. I, I could have, you know, like slated it out in a hedge fund if my finite goal is to make a ton of money. So there, there's a ton of risk in it and you have to explain it. And, but again, it's like, uh, rather than explain, well, why my margarita is $14, there, there's a reason why, but unrelated, I go, well, shit, I better have a room that makes people want to be in it to drink a $14 margarita, or I better put that in a glass that feels yeah, $14, or, margarita, right? or the hospitality with it that comes with it um, better match that. It better make it worth it somehow, some way. Um, I, I think that's how you have to think about it. I mean, do either of you get tired of having to explain and to justify? I mean, do you like? Do you feel that sometimes like the conversation deals? And I know, ironically, I'm asking this on a panel and podcast called about the real price of food. But like, do you ever just do you're like, fuck, like I just I'm tired about talking about the money of these things. I think like because some chefs never. I mean, like yeah. Del Posto never gets questioned about it. Like, you and know. I and I get it, but like there's some stuff like. Or you're just like, just, I just want to cook my food. I want you to call me and talk to me about the spice mix and not the, cost, the price of, of, of what I'm serving. I think, like, we do less of that. We really don't. There's very small percentage of time that we have to have those types of conversations with customers. And typically, it's going to be about what we first talked about when we opened the podcast, which is, why is my taco $4, right? But less of, like, you know in this degree but you have I think you have a lot at least me because I interact with our investors a lot you have a lot more of those now than I did you know when we first opened Tokyo Underground about why are the, you know why are our margins the way that our margins are and it seems like every month there's another thing that you need to figure out and you know when you when you first you know open a restaurant you set one price and when you want to change the prices you know, you can't do it every month, every six months, every eight months and to adjust for the law. You know, you're, you're kind of waiting like six months, maybe to a year before you do these major changes or a whole nother season. So there could be months where you have these really awful margins because of a change and you're not really, you can't just, they can't, they can't just put in a law and then you're immediately adjusting your prices. You know, you're trying to keep up with uh, tax law changes, payroll law changes, IRS changes, HR changes, all these changes. And then the only way that we can do it is by adjusting our prices or lowering our costs. And like sure. people like, you know, Chef and I, we're not going to lower our costs um, by buying cheaper food, uh, different quality food. We're still searching for those best ingredients to give that best experience because we're justifying a $4 taco, $15 ramen. Um, and then dealing with not just these ethnic barriers, but all these other barriers as well. Do you feel the pressure to make the, f- I mean, obviously any chef is gonna wanna put up good food, but do you feel that added pressure because of the conversations, I mean, of having to justify the costs and, and, and what, and the, all the issues that come with it? Like consistently, like you can't ever put up, you can never put up bad food and not saying that you would, but do you feel like an extra value that if someone doesn't come in and doesn't quite understand what it is that you're doing that they feel that they're justified in saying, like, this was overpriced? Um, I mean, well, just for the record, they are justified in saying whatever they want as a customer. Um, of course. And, and they're, they are perfectly welcome also to take their business elsewhere. Um, a, as a business owner, you just have to, I think you have to read all the data and, and really just 
make a decision, and there's no right or wrong, but you have to go with your gut and make a decision on what you're going to listen to and what you're not going to listen to. Again, back to, I, I read two Yelp reviews today. One of them I completely disregard, and I'll tell you what they said. They said again, they said, I can't believe I paid $10 for this, and I ordered chorizo, and it wasn't real chorizo. So all that told me is that they don't really know what Mexican chorizo is. Right. And I would love to know what their definition again, so, yeah, yeah. so But that's why I disregarded that Yelp review. I'll tell you another one I read, though, right next to it that I'm pissed off about because I think that person was right. They said, you know, I went there, and, you know, the cashier was eating guacamole, and they were too busy doing that to ring up my order. Now, that one pissed me off. Ooh. That you one know, pissed me off because I think that person yeah. – I, I think that happened, mm. and I think that person's telling the truth, and that's something I don't abide by. So, like – I read those things to, to like, look, I, you have three restaurants and you travel. You can't be in your restaurants at all times. Sure. But I can read that and I cannot blow smoke up my own ass and take that serious and go, we screwed up. Yeah. So um, I think, again, like the customer gets to say whatever they want and we get to do whatever we want with that information. Um, and again, yeah, sure, there, there's issues. Another thing I want to like really to the point of ethnic cooking, quote unquote ethnic cooking, if you opened a business with one of the core intentions is to change perception of a cuisine. You have to be a, you know, you have to put on your big boy pants or your big girl pants, and you have to be willing to, to know that that is going to be a really, that could possibly be really tough. Yeah. So, of course, you can cop out and say, yeah, well, pasta is, you know, so cheap to make and blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, let, let's talk about what was Italian food in America 40 years ago? You couldn't find Parmesan cheese wherever you looked. Right. You, like, no. no, people didn't have opinions on risotto or whether it should be made out of this rice or that rice. That didn't exist. So, uh, I mean, you have to, and you have to think about that there were a lot, of, probably a lot of restaurants fighting that out and trying to, you know, bring the cuisine that they love, that they're passionate about to this market. And probably a lot of them failed trying to pioneer that, and, you know? So you have to, you also, I mean, if you're doing that, you have to be willing to take that risk. If you're just gonna be a cold-blooded business person, we'll just look at Italian cooking and the, um, uh, the, the positive physical qualities of it and how you're going to, you know, profit off of that. Right. And just you take some sort of, quote unquote, version of Italian food. Sure. Make as the biggest margin you can uh, based on ingredients and slap a nice label on it. Sure. And, and there, again, there's no morale. There's nothing morally wrong with that either if that's what you wanted to do. Well, then, I mean, I mean, I, I love the passion. I love of saying, like, the customer is right to think that way. But if the customer is right to think that way... Again, ironically, I ask, why is there so many conversations about this? Is it just because people just have nothing better to talk about? Or is it just that they want to be, you know, the people have time to be naysayer, like to go do something like it, but then be like, then complain about it anyway? Look, I, I get that. I get that every day. You yeah. Know? But that's, I mean, just. Is that just being in the public? Our community, like our community yeah. of people are just haters. Whether they're, whether they're having a great time or not, it's just like part of our speak to be like this uh mom makes it better grandma makes it better this is better this was better there but it doesn't mean they're like not enjoying themselves or this but also it can kind of borderline on that you know and i when i did a i did an event in taiwan and and, and we had a, a press session like this and i was so excited to be cooking in my home country uh doing the food the way that we do it in america in my home country and um all they really cared about was whether or not I knew what it was that I was doing culturally. 
You know, they're like, do you know where that dish is from? Do you understand what province is that that's from? Do you know, you know, who technically is the originator of this thing you're doing a riff on? No question was like, what's Toki Underground? What's Maketo? You know, this or Not, that. It was what's more. What's your life work? No, no, no. no it was no, just no. like, do you understand the the nuances of why you chose to do those things? And and that was it was like that for an hour, and it was it was like a. Uh, like a beauty pageant of knowledge of Chinese <laughs> cooking, and it was it was it was just like, you know, and and I think that's just kind of, you can ask him any question about Mexican food, and he'll he'll give you the right answer every time, and that and that's why we can do what we do because we're not just you know cooking this thing that we are, but we're students, and we and we want to represent it the right way. Do you feel that? And you feel that? I mean, you must. Do you feel that extra weight on your shoulder? To, to know the province, to know the, the history more than someone that would, be, that would be there or be from there? I didn't before until then. Be, but why? Because I didn't realize it was important to, to them, mm. to Taiwanese people in Taiwan. Because they're really, they're, you know, it's a small island. So they're like, hey, here's this guy who's representing us in the U.S. There's not a lot of Taiwanese restaurants doing mm-hmm. this new thing. And, I, and I'm just, like, happy to just to say, hey, I'm, I'm Taiwanese and... You my people, you know? But then it was like, um, I realized from that trip, it was like, to them, they wanted, they were basically telling me, it is important to us here, even though you're doing your own version, for you to understand where all these things came from. And, and then that, that's, that was a big lesson for me. I mean, you answer those questions all the time, though, Alex, right? Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, not to get uh, too off subject, but I, I mean, it's. It, I think it's generally whether you are trying to cook uh, authentic X Y Z or um, interpretive X Y Z. I think it's very important to cite the source. Um, I think it's actually particularly imper- uh, important in my shoes um, as an outsider to it. I think you cite the source, and I think you never ever claim, well, well, this is exactly how they do it in Oaxaca. Um, you're informed by how they do it in Oaxaca. Um, and I have, I have cooked uh, highly interpretive Oaxacan food in Oaxaca to see how it went. It's like, well, if here's your traditional lamb barbacoa, well, here's uh, uh, lamb tartare that has lamb barbacoa flavors. And I've actually gotten um, really great reception to that. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think what matters is that how you roll, like how you present yourself. So if you say, like, look, I'm an outsider. I think you, you – look, I'm a white guy from Massachusetts that was brought up with undelicious food. And I think that this is the most delicious food on earth. Thank you for making it. Yeah. Um, and by the way, here's my take on it as, uh, as an American. This is what inspired me to do this. And so long as you present it that way, um, I think it's okay. To, to your, the original question, though, like, again, with all this um, commentary from people, I think another thing we have to acknowledge is that um, food has become a massive uh, personal identifier for our culture. 100%. More so, I feel like we're talking more about food now than we're talking about art or architecture or fashion or music. Yeah. Um, so to that point, you are going to hear more opinions. Wh- whether those are positive ones or negative ones, it's up for grabs, but you're going to hear more of it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think when I think about that I'd spend nine ninety nine a month to get a, a million CDs on Spotify, and that's sort of how I define the investment I make on music, you know, except for going to shows. I'll spend that on breakfast, you know? Like, I mean, that's, that's an, in, an investment. Like, where I spend my, personally, for me, my money, and you see people like that because, you know, going back to, like, what it is to eat at your restaurants, I mean, you're paying for an experience. You know, you're paying for, and that's, 
listen, your tacos, your ramen is going to be delicious whether I eat it, you know, in my couch, in my athletic shorts versus getting dressed up and going out with my fiance to a night to, you know, to the restaurant. But I know what I'm going to remember. You know, I'm not going to know that. And part of it is this thing. And I guess you guys are sort of like curators and makers of like a night out. You know, it's like you, you work, you know, especially younger people who are willing to like, I'm going to save. I'm going to save, I'm going to save, and I'm going to go to, to your restaurant. So as, I mean, going beyond just like the weight of the glass, the, the heft of the glass, something like that, like how are you guys curating the night out to, to go beyond just like the physical nature of it? Like how do you create that vibe that justifies the price of, of what you're charging? Or not justifies, but adds to the experience. I think you, look, I think you have to look at the environment holistically. Um, yeah. Uh, that's your music or the lack thereof. It's the size of the table. It's the lighting that shines on it. It's the space between the tables. It's um, selecting the plate where, like, if you, if you have a restaurant where everything is meant to share and you're going to bomb that table with six plates at once, that is perfectly okay so long as all six of those plates plus the two share plates for the people and the forks and the knives and the water glass and their cocktail glass all fit on it. That's, so people don't get pissed off about oh, it's small plates for sharing. They get pissed off when the server tries to put the food down and you're still eating something, but they have to take that plate away right. to, to put the other plate down and there's still not enough real estate. And you're just so, like, this was not thought out. I'm pissed. And again, so, but what you, and you will get someone who says, well, this restaurant sucks and it was too expensive. They don't know why it sucked. They're not gonna, they're not gonna, most people, most customers are not gonna trace it back to the fact that the music was too loud or... Um, the server was a jerk or like because you can't remember you're you're three to four drinks deep after that sure. you don't remember why you just remember you had a negative experience and usually it manifests in a complaint as too expensive for what it was but maybe if you considered your plateware a little bit more carefully or any other of the million things that make up a restaurant this is why restaurants are exciting too by the way because it's this is what like this is the joy of a restaurateur you're building this um this ecosystem. Mm. It's really cool. Yeah, it's and, yeah. And it's like theater. You have to you have to execute it over and over every single night. And that's the same as whether it's a a burger place or um or you know a three Michelin star restaurant. And the other thing too is like I want to like bring something up. Like let's just talk about branding and the power of that. Mm -hmm. Because it's not just about ethnic food. A burger at Shake Shack is more expensive than a burger at McDonald's. Here's how I'll tell you one has a good brand and one has the other. One eats a burger and they Instagram it and they like they put the burger next to their face and they go look, look what I'm eating look how look look how awesome this is I got this and we're talking about a burger the other one when they eat it they don't tell anyone and they're it's so freaking ashamed that it's they're there I'll tell them they're, all day they're so guilty <laughs> I, f I fucking so, ate that McDonald's burger they will, <laughs> golden arches it's like it's like um it's like engaging in like prostitution or something like that it's like you want no receipt like no yeah. no hey, no evidence of this you'll transaction never meet my ever friends happened. you'll never meet yeah. my family instagram that, i love you but you I should mean, you should see mcdonald's in is, paris it's really nice is, <laughs> the but, uh, but is the quality i mean to go like that like what's the i don't know as well but like the quality of meat for shake shack is a better quality than a mcdonald's burger it's about yeah, it's about packaging and in like saying you know say for like maketo we there is nothing unintentional about the way we package this business because it's complicated. It's a menswear store. It's a coffee shop. It's an Asian restaurant. It's in black and white, and it looks like it's in L.A., but you're in this swamp of Washington, D.C. So it's like, how do we do this thing? And we, we modeled this restaurant off of all the uh, really well-done retail brands like Supreme, Undefeated, Comme des Garçons. And it's like, let's, let's make our restaurant website 
look like a retail brand's website. Let's run the Instagram like a retail brand Instagram. Let's make people want to come to this place um, just because it looks good on the internet. And, and that's why people buy. So like people will be able to have a Maketo experience when, when the online, you know, our online store launches next week. And we wanted to do that after we hit like 15, 20,000 followers on Instagram. Right. Because people will now be able to have a Maketo experience without ever going to Maketo, yeah. um, which is new, you know? Like, yeah, um, because Maketo is so many things besides just the restaurant. The restaurant is just a component of that. And that's one thing that we have to do to survive. That's one way we can stay in business. And because we play this, this nuance of it, I think that's kind of... Um, kind of the ground that we're breaking is that people can have, quote-unquote, this experience of Maketo without ever going there. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's like a band. Just, yeah. You got the t-shirts, you got the pins, yep. you know, the CD, yep. the, the live album, things like that. So I know we're getting close to the end. I just want to ask you guys, where do you see this all going? I mean, do you just see that a few brave guys like yourself are going to continue to, to fight this? Or is it going to be more people just saying, we're going to rise this, you know, use the, the, a tide to lift all the ships and we're just going to do better ingredients and it's just all going to cost more. I think there's going to be, um, I think there's going to be less restaurants, but they're going to be better. Sure. I think that um, with changing uh, concepts of luxury generationally, you're going to see more new and interesting ways that really great stuff gets deployed, delivered, and packaged. And I don't think any of that's a bad thing. I mean, you have guys like us telling average Joe what we think is luxury now, you know, and because we're kind of defining what something really nice is, redefining what people consider luxury. And um, like, I agree there'll be less restaurants, but they'll be better. Um, I don't know how I would have ever opened up Toki Underground in this year, this time and age, and, you know, it's all about community building, which is probably not as possible in New York City because it's more cutthroat, but definitely more possible in Washington, D.C., where other restaurateurs help up-and-coming guys open restaurants but have nothing to do with them. Um, I basically opened Sally's middle name, but it's not in my portfolio. You know, I negotiated the lease for them. I did everything I could possibly do for them for him to open a restaurant and have a good deal and then just say, hey, good luck. Call me if you need any help. But this is the best possible lease you would have gotten um, because I was involved in it. And I think you get a lot, if you can have a lot more of those types of things happening, um, uh, you'll, you'll be able to see more creative things thing. But if, if we just continue to grow and we're like, all right, this, I'm, I'm, I'm cashing in and good luck, you know? Like, Jose Andres was a huge help to me uh, when, when I was getting Maketo going. And he invited me over to his office a lot and was like, this is, these are the things you need to look out for as you grow. And if, as long as we continue to mentor new guys, you know, we'll find ways to make things possible. People will keep making music whether or not people are buying it and people will sure. keep cooking food and, and you know, five years later, everyone's buying vinyl records, you know, and it's like... It's swing back. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's, it's like, who would have thought, so... Yeah. Well, listen, guys, I want to thank you. Uh, where can people stalk you, find you, send you love letters, hate mail? <laughs> I'll be at Empeleon for... No, I'm just joking. <laughs> um... I'm I'm usually at one of my restaurants one way or another. I mean, when I'm not hanging out in Austin, of course. Um, and online, where can they find you? Uh, it's uh, it's empeon.com, E-M-P-E-L-L-O-N. Cool. Instagram, you got a good game? Uh, it's, uh, it's Alex Stupak, at, uh, both at Instagram and Twitter. 
Mostly tacos and cats, right? Mm-hmm. Lots Satan. A lot of pictures. Like, yeah. Tacos and cats. <laughs> tacos, I mean, that's, tacos, that's, cats, and Satan. That's pretty that's much the internet. As far interest. as I'm concerned, those are the three things that make up the internet. So, <laughs> um, uh, I'm always at work, unless I'm here. That's always my answer to someone. Where can I find you? I'm always at work, unless I'm here. I'm right here. <laughs> and, on, and online? And online, uh, Maketo1351. At of course at Tokyo Underground and then at Eric Brunner Yang. Online what? store soon. Online store Friday. Wow, awesome. There you go. Well, thank you everybody who has been listening and will be listening in the future. If you enjoyed this panel, all of our South Bites coverage is on the Snacky Tunes podcast on Heritage Radio Network, and of course you can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Thank you to everybody who participated in these panels and everybody who helped put them together. Um, that's it. Yep. Thanks. Shout, out, shout out to Greg, to Anna, Meatball, Mom, Dad. Yeah. See you back in Brooklyn and L.A.